0: Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Psalm 9. Psalm 9, we're continuing our series through the Psalter. And so we find ourselves in Psalm 9 this morning. Turn there and I will read it and then we'll pray and then we will think about this Psalm together. Hear God's word from Psalm 9. For the choir director, according to Muth Laban, a Psalm of David. I will thank the Lord with all my heart. I will declare all your wondrous works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name, Most High. When my enemies retreat, they stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my just cause. You are seated on your throne as a righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations, you have destroyed the wicked, you have erased their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to eternal ruin. You have uprooted the cities, and the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. Sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Proclaim his deeds among the nations. For the one who seeks an accounting for bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the oppressed. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death, so that I may declare all your praises. I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of daughter Zion. The nations have fallen into the pit they made. Their foot is caught in the net they have concealed. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed justice. Snaring the wicked by the work of their hands. The wicked will return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten. The hope of the oppressed will not perish forever. Rise up, Lord. Do not let mere humans prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Put terror in them, Lord. Let the nations know. They are only humans. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father, we pray now with our Bibles open before us that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in Psalm 9. We pray that you would incline our hearts to your word and not to material gain. As we listen to this message, Lord, some of our hearts are callous, some of our hearts are cold, some of our hearts are distracted. So we pray that you would unite our heart to fear your name. Give us a singular focus. Give us a desire, a delight, an anticipation, and an expectation that you have a very specific word for us who are hearing this word today. God, speak to us generally as a church and individually and specifically to our specific trials and our exact situation we're in. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast covenant love, your covenant loyalty, so that we would rejoice and be glad in you today and all of our days. Lord, help us, we need your Holy Spirit now, for apart from you, we can't listen and preach well. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember the last time that you got over a huge challenge in your life, a huge difficulty, um, and succeeded? I don't know what that is for you. For me, it might've been a writing project recently, Or um, even if I think back to our church here at Bethany Baptist Church, I think back to the five years of being at this church and longing to get to this place of a healthy church. And it was like a huge, huge mountain um, to climb that a lot of us members have overtaken in these last five years. And then we finally get a fairly clean membership role, a meaningful membership role. And then on top of that, We have a plurality of pastors. We get two other pastors. So now there's three pastors. And there's a great victory in some ways. It's like, praise God for what he's done. It felt like a long time in coming. But because we live in a broken world, it's not like everything was done. Challenges will continue. Challenges within the pastorate. Challenges with those outside in our church. Challenges with where does the church go next. There's always challenges and there is sin and brokenness. And so... Sometimes you can feel this great relief like, praise God, I finished. And then you wake up the next morning and there's a fresh set of challenges and brokenness for you to jump into. Or you find yourself stuck in, actually, where you have to face it and endure it. Now, David here, David wrote Psalm 9. He was the king who was betrayed by his son and his military and his countrymen. Now, um, Jim Hamilton suggests... That Psalm 3, where it talks about a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom, is really going through this whole psalm all the way up until this point. And the reason he thinks that is because it says, for the choir director, according to Muth Laben. Now Ben, does anyone here know what Ben means in Hebrew? We have a church member named Ben. Ben, um, we have two members named Ben. Ben means son. Ben is son. So uh, Muth is death. So death to the sun. So this is a song for the choir director according to the song or the melody of death to the Sun," a psalm of David, death to the son. Well, Absalom was David's son who died in battle. And so Jim Hamilton suggests that this psalm is written um, in Second in Samuel, where Absalom dies, David grieves and he mourns and he laments. Here, it's more of a celebration of God's justice, and those are both real. Like, you could mourn over a wayward son and grieve, and at the same time, ultimately rejoice in God's justice and righteousness. Those are not, those don't have to be at odds. You could grieve and rejoice. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, Paul says. You could do both. And so he suggests that that's in David's mind as, as we read the psalm. I am not as sure as he is. And the only reason is, it is because he talks about the nations or the Gentiles here. And Absalom wasn't a Gentile, nor were his nor, were, nor was his military. But I still think it's helpful to think about the story here. So David here, he's the king. He was betrayed by his son. And now this betrayal, this treachery cuts deep, right? When your son is the traitor and he's the leader and all your countrymen and your military leaders go against you, um, you, you serve God's, God's people, your people for faith, faithfully for years, and then they betray you. And then as... David escaped, um, as he escaped Jerusalem, eventually Absalom and his military meet David's army with Joab leading that army. And then Absalom is killed. And like I said, David mourns in Second Samuel. But here, David speaks out to God as he looks back at God's faithfulness and the defeat of his enemies. And as he looks forward to the next set of trials in his life. Now we want to keep going in our lives. I mean, we want to keep hitting these victories, keep on taking on the next challenge, but we want to make sure we don't burn out, that after the next challenge, we just fizzle out in our Christian faith. We want to keep enjoying God trial after trial after trial, hard season after good season after hard season after good season. We want to make sure that we're clinging to Christ and enjoying God throughout the whole thing. One author has said, wonderful deliverances can be followed by fresh needs. Wonderful deliverances can be followed by fresh needs. Life is trouble along the way. Paul wrote, Paul said in Acts 14:22, "It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It's necessary to go through many hardships, tribulations to enter the kingdom of God." So brothers and sisters, we should never be surprised that after experiencing God in big ways and big victories and deliverances, that we find ourselves in more traps, in more pits, and in more opposition. We shouldn't be surprised by that, we should expect that until we die. So how do we keep a clear worshipful heart, a worshipful frame of spirit in our trials? How do we rejoice in God in our trials? Our internal trials are sometimes, actually, I would say that our internal trials are harder than our external trials. It could be one thing for, for people to press on you or having a difficult situation, but when your heart starts to stray from God and now I'm complaining against God and I'm actually doubting God, that's a trial on the inside. And that's the scary thing. You can get trials from the outside, there's always gonna be difficulties in life, but when the trial goes inward and now I'm doubting God, now I'm complaining at, at God, now I'm mad at God, that's when, I mean, that's when it gets really difficult and that's in a sense, even more dangerous. So how do we continue to live as a holy sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, as that is our spiritual worship according to Romans 12:1 and two. How do we do that when we face these trials on the outside and on the inside? Here's the main goal. As you look back and as you look forward, speak out to God. That's, that's the main thing is speak out to God. As you look back at your past victories and as you look forward in current trials and future trials, speak out to God so that you enjoy God's blessing. As you look back and as you look forward, speak out to God so that you enjoy God's blessings. And when I say so that you enjoy God's blessings, what I mean very specifically is so that you enjoy God's Psalm one blessings. You remember Psalm one, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the council of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in Yahweh's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. And he's like a tree planted beside streams of water. He bears fruit, he's solid, he's strong. Whatever he does, he prospers. That's what we wanna be, right? In trials. In victories, in defeat, in challenges, we wanna experience God's blessing as the blessed man or the blessed woman. And so therefore, as we look back and as we look forward, speak out to God so that we enjoy God's blessings in this life. Now, how shall we speak out to God? In this Psalm, and it's repetitive, the Psalm has the same themes on both things here, but there's two ways to speak out to God. In verses one through 12, we sing to God. And verses 13 to 20, we pray to God, okay? So when I say speak out to God, that's the big category. How do we speak out to God? We speak out to God in song, and we speak out to God in prayers, in words. And we've done both this morning in the Zoom meeting, and we've done both even here before this sermon is recorded. We have sang to the Lord, and we have prayed to the Lord. And that's what is called for here in the psalm. Now, because we've been going through Psalms for the past several weeks, I'm gonna focus on the first point on singing to God more than praying to God because the praying to God is praying for judgment and justice, which we did a whole sermon on in Psalm 7. Not that Psalm 9 isn't unique, but you can go back to Psalm 7 and listen to that sermon if you want a full sermon thinking about praying for God's judgment on the guilty. We'll touch on that here, but we'll focus on singing to God, okay? So let's look at these two. Number one, sing gratefully and publicly to Yahweh. That's number one. Sing gratefully and publicly to Yahweh, verses one through 12. I'll say it one more time. Sing gratefully and publicly to Yahweh. Now look at the command. You see the command in verses one and two and in verse 11. Look at verse one. I will thank the Lord with all my heart. I will declare all your wondrous works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name most high. Verse 11, sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Proclaim his deeds among the nations. So here's singing gratefully. Here's singing publicly. Now notice the resolve. I will. You see that four times in verses one and two. I will thank the Lord. I will declare his wondrous works. I will rejoice. I will sing. He is resolved. The psalmist David is resolved to praise God. And he's calling us to determine, to decide today. Decide now. I will live a life of praise. I will praise God in trial. I will bless God's name. When he gives and takes away, I will bless God's name. I will thank him. A Christian, a believer, is resolved, is committed to thanking God and trusting God's goodness. And so that I want you to notice here, I will thank the Lord with what? In verse one, with all my heart. Not some of my heart, with all my heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. I'm gonna thank God wholeheartedly. So this is wholehearted gratitude not half-hearted gratitude. It's so easy to give gratitude in a half-hearted way, and God calls us to wholehearted gratitude. God is good. God is good all the time. God is always good. God is only good. God is overwhelmingly, graciously, audaciously good. I mean, He spoils us with His goodness when we think about what we deserve, right? God is always good. He is only good. And the only type of gratitude that is appropriate to this good God is wholehearted gratitude. Thanking God with our whole hearts, with all of our hearts. Notice also that part of this command to sing gratefully and publicly is to preach. Did you know that you're called to preach? You're a preacher too? That's why we don't call me here the pastor of preaching in some sense, because... um, I'm the pastor of the pulpit. Here's the pulpit. This is a Sunday morning thing that I'm in charge of, the, the public teaching in that regard. But all of our members are to declare the wondrous works of God. All of you are to preach the gospel, to preach the goodness of God in Christ and declare the wondrous works. And that's also part of what we do in gratitude. We preach and declare God's good works. It says here, I will sing about, I will rejoice about you, but we sing about God's good works even among The nations, look at verse 11, proclaim his deeds where? So verse two says, or verse one says, declare your wondrous works. Verse 11 says, proclaim his deeds among who? Among Among the nations. So it's a public proclamation. We're not just supposed to preach to Christians only. We're not only supposed to sing to God here in the church gatherings. We're to sing to God and publicly declare his wondrous works among the nations. We praise God publicly and God uses that not just to the covenant community. And then look, notice here again in verse two, I will rejoice and boast about you. This singing gratefully is a joyful, it's a rejoicing, it's a boasting. When you're so glad in something, you can't help but boast about it to other people, right? That's what um, parents use social media for in a lot of ways, is to see cool or cute things about their kids and they like to boast about it, but they don't, we don't often boast or um, declare our children's awful deeds and awful things or post the pictures when they're not looking so good necessarily. Um, We boast about what we love and we boast about what we rejoice in. And we boast about the things that we find our identity in to some degree. And so here, he will rejoice and boast about God because his identity is in God. And then the singing part. And this is where I'm getting the word for this point, sing gratefully. I will sing about your name. And then verse 11, I will sing or sing to Yahweh so we sing about Yahweh and we sing to Yahweh notice that about Yahweh who is Yahweh he's the covenant-keeping God Deuteronomy 7 9 my memory verse for the week know that Yahweh here's the name God's God's personal name Yahweh know that Yahweh your God is God the faithful God now who is Yahweh he's the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty before a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. But notice, Yahweh God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations. He doesn't break his covenant. He promised to bless cursed sinners. He promises to bless cursed sinners in Abraham's seed, in the, through that great nation. And God keeps his covenant loyalty. He does not break it. This is the, this is the God we're to boast in. There's only one true God and his name is not just God in general or the God of all religions or all religions have the same God. No, the true God, the only God is the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the Old Testament called or named Yahweh, the God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty. So we boast about God, the true God, the God of the Bible. We boast about him and then we, bo- we sing to him. So we sing about him. Verse 11, we sing to him. We sing to Yahweh. And notice here, this, this God, Yahweh, dwells in Zion. What is Zion? Zion is the name for the city of God. And the city of God is often combined with the city of David, Jerusalem. So oftentimes you'll see Zion as Jerusalem, but sometimes you'll just hear Zion. I mean, it kind of alludes to Jerusalem, the city of David, where David reigned, God's king reigned and God's tabernacle and temple was, the Ark of the Covenant was there in Jerusalem. So the city of David was the city of God. So you can call Zion Jerusalem. But as we think about the Bible and as we think about God's dwelling place from the Garden of Eden to the traveling tabernacle to Jerusalem to Jesus being crucified in Jerusalem to the church now being the temple to the new Jerusalem, there's this theme of the dwelling place of God called Zion. In David's time, it is the actual city of David in Jerusalem. Now, what does singing do? Here we're commanded to sing to God. Or we're commanded to sing about God. What does singing do? Singing causes you to meditate on scripture. Why don't we just talk about God? Why, don't, why, do, why do we have to sing? Why do we sing so many songs at BBC when we gather? Too many songs. Why do we sing so many songs? Some of you might uh, thankfully complain. We sing because of meditation. It helps us meditate on God's word. We sing because it pushes truths deeper in our lives than words can and thoughts can. We sing because it engages aspects of our Life besides the intellect. You use vocal cords. You're using eyes to look at words. You're using body. You're using your breathing. You're inhaling and you're exhaling. You're, so it engages your body. It engages your emotions. It engages your will on top of your intellect. It sticks in your memory. Those who have dementia, by the way, if you live long enough and you get dementia, you better memorize as many songs as you can now because you won't, those will be the last things you forget are songs. It sticks in your memory. It goes deep in the soul. Singing rises above the debate and discussion to celebration and declaration. We could talk about a sermon. We could debate points here and there. We could debate theology. But when you're singing, you're not debating anymore. You're declaring and praising. And that that gets to the ultimate end. There's nothing wrong with discussion and disagreeing and debating to make sure you get the truth right. But once you get the truth right, what do you do with it? You celebrate it. You declare it. And singing does that. So singing shapes you. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. The command here is to sing gratefully and publicly because singing shapes who you are. Singing shapes who the church is. That's why we sing together. So Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we sing to one another. So we're singing about Yahweh to one another. But then it also says in Colossians 3.16, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So here in Colossians 3.16, you get singing to one another about Yahweh and singing to Yahweh. And that's what we do. We sing about God and we sing to God. So let me give you three reasons here as we look at verses 3 through 12. Here, let me give you three reasons why we should sing gratefully and publicly, okay? Three reasons why we should sing gratefully and publicly. Reason number one, sing gratefully and publicly because your enemies fail. Your enemies failed, And they will fail, but more on the past tense. Your enemies have failed, verses three through six. Sing gratefully and publicly because your enemies have failed, verses three through six. Look at verse three. When my enemies retreat, they stumble and perish before you. So notice here, God's enemies or David's enemies are stumbling. They're perishing. They're retreating. They can't, they can't stand up to David. Why? Because of verse four, for you have upheld my just cause. You are seated on your throne as a righteous judge. Why does David win and why, does it, why do his enemies retreat? Why did his enemies retreat? Because God is upholding David's side. God is on David's side. And when God is on your side, it doesn't matter who's against you. If you're on God's side, it doesn't matter who's against you. You will win and your enemies, God's enemies will fail. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, How do we know that we have the right enemies and we're not against God? Well, we actually have to side on God's God's side. So we need to take our Bibles and make sure we're on God's side biblically. But also, we need to be on God's Messiah side. David is the Messiah. And if you're on God's Messiah side, then you're on David's side. Since David is the Messiah, there is messianic, there's a messianic team, so to speak, and there's messianic opposition. And God's enemies, the Messiah's opponents will fail. Messianic opposition will fail. Those who are against Jesus Christ today will fail. And so that's a reason to um, rejoice. Look at verse 5 as we continue. Look at what God does to the wicked. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have erased their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to eternal ruin. You have uprooted their cities, and the very memory of them has perished. God rebukes them. God destroys them. God erases the nations. He rebuked them. He calls out their sin. God doesn't just pick a side arbitrarily. God names the sin and he convicts them so that they feel the shame and guilt of their sins. He destroys them, probably referring to ending their lives. You might think of eternal hell and that's a good theological thought to to think and to associate here. But David's probably referring to just the fact that God kills them, that they die on earth. He erased their name forever and ever. That's he's erasing them from the book of life. That is final judgment. Now you gotta keep in mind that Jesus even threatened the church. In Revelation 3, verse 5, uh, he threatens the church at uh Sardis, I think. I think it's Sardis. Revelation 3 5, he, he he um rebukes the church at Sardis and says, if you don't complete your works, if you don't repent, I will erase your name from the book of life. Those who cling to me and conquer, I will never erase their name. So you could be a professing Christian and not really be a Christian. God erases the names of the Messiah's enemies forever and ever. And they are ruined. The nations are ruined. They're ruined in verse 6. They are uprooted and they are forgotten. People live to to leave, leave a legacy, right? They want to know, how am I going to be remembered? How am I going to be remembered on this earth? And God says, the enemies of God will be forgotten. The enemies of David the Messiah will be forgotten. The nations who oppose Jesus to apply it today, will be forgotten and ruined and uprooted and erased. Now, praise God. God saves people from every ethnic tribe, right? People, nation, and language. We praise God for that. That's why we do missions. That's why we pray for the nations. That's why we engage our neighbors. And yet those who don't come to the Messiah will, be, will fail. That's the first reason. The second reason why we sing gratefully and publicly is because Yahweh judges rightly, verses seven and eight, and then verse 12. 7 and 8 and verse 12. We sing gratefully and publicly because Yahweh judges rightly. Look at verses 7 and 8. But the Lord, Yahweh, sits enthroned forever. So he's on the throne, and who sits on the throne? What kind of person sits on a throne? A king. He has established his throne. Now, he's not just the king, he has established his throne for judgment. So he's not only a king, he is a judge and i know we live in the united states those who i'm preaching to at least in our church and so we have the separation of the executive branch legislative branch and judicial branch but the king is all three branches he is the executive branch that's what we normally think of with a king probably he is the legislative branch the lawgiver and he is the judge he's the final supreme court and so who is the final supreme court yahweh the lord is enthroned he sits uh, He has established his throne for judgment Verse eight, and he judges the world with righteousness. That's why I say he judges rightly and fairly. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness, on the Gentiles with fairness. What is righteousness? Does God have a book that he goes to? If he's in a judgment, does he like, you know, go to a shelf and have to look up some law somewhere and think, oh, I gotta find what righteousness is. Does God have a standard of righteousness that he has to look up to when he, um, when he judges? Does he have a book that he has to go to or a set of laws that he has to go to? Yes or no? What do you think? No, no. No. Yes, you're correct. I shouldn't say yes. Correct. No, he doesn't have a set of laws. God is the law. God is the standard. Okay, God is autonomous in that sense. God is a law unto himself. God is fair. Or Whatever God does is fair because God is by nature fair. God doesn't say, oh, what does, what does Bethany Baptist Church think fairness is? What do my people, what do humans think fairness is? Oh, now I need to go follow their laws of fairness. No, our laws are distorted. We don't know the truth. We don't know reality. We don't know God on our own. We're limited. We're finite. We're sinful. God isn't sinful. He's not limited. He's not finite. He's infinite. And he's holy and he's righteous and he's pure. God never does wrong because that's who he is. Not because he follows a rule book outside of himself that's above him. God is highly exalted on the throne. And so God will always judge rightly. What is God's righteousness? God's righteousness, this is John Piper's definition, God's righteousness is his unswerving allegiance and commitment to uphold his value, his worth, his glory. God will always do what upholds his glory the most because God is the standard of worth and value and glory and beauty and goodness and rightness and fairness. So God will do everything. He's committed to upholding his value and his glory. And because God is committed, he's always righteous. He's committed to himself. He will always do what is right. God will find, look at verse 12. For the one who seeks an account, this is part of God's righteousness. For the one who seeks an accounting for the bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the oppressed. Why do we sing? According to verse 12, because God seeks an accounting. God will finally account for every crime and every act of oppression. There is not one crime, one sin that will ever go unpunished. Every single sin, every single violation, every single hurt, sinful hurt that was caused by humans towards other humans will be punished. God is righteous. He's completely righteous and it will be done. Aren't you guys glad that sins and crimes and atrocities committed against people won't go unpunished? We constantly cry for justice and rightfully so here on earth, and it's good to do that. But there is no final justice. If someone gets, if someone murders somebody and then that person is actually justly tried and convicted and sentenced, that doesn't bring the person back. It doesn't finally do right. It doesn't fully pay for the lost life. Final, full, and complete justice will not be done until God does it, but God will do it. And then for all those who get away with their crimes, God will do that as well and and punish sin there. Aren't you guys glad that God is fair and that he will justly avenge those who unjustly victimize and oppress others? Isn't it a blessing that God cannot be corrupted? He cannot be compromised. He cannot be tempted to be unjustly partial and unfair. Sing gratefully and publicly to God for he is righteous the second reason. The third reason why we just, we need to sing gratefully and publicly is because thirdly, because Yahweh remembers the oppressed. Yahweh remembers the oppressed. Look at verse 10. This is in verses 9 and 10, but let's look at verse 10 first and then we'll go back to verse 9. Verse 10 says, "Those who know your name trust in you. Why do they trust in God? Because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord." Those who've experienced past grace, Trust in God. God hasn't abandoned them in the past, right? As they seek God. And so they continue to seek God and they trust God for the future. Now I want you to notice this. This is how you live the Christian life. This is why you should be growing every day. and You should be growing in your faith. Past grace is another evidence of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness to strengthen your faith and trust for future grace. Does that make sense? The longer you live your life as a Christian, the more you experience past grace from God. Every day God is pouring out grace on you, right? He has not abandoned you every day. And because He's not abandoning you, every single day is more evidence that God's trustworthy for your future moment, right? That's more evidence today that you should trust God than yesterday. We ought to trust God more every day because those who trust God have seen God come through again and again and again. So it only makes sense that believers, you are growing in your faith. You only have more evidence and more situations that you've seen God faithful in. Not less, it never gets less. It only grows because God never fails. So we should be growing in faith here. We sing publicly because Yahweh remembers the oppressed and we know that he remembers it. And so we can continue to sing to him about future trials. And look at verse nine, when we talk about the oppressed directly here. The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted. And that is translated oppressed in the ESV, ISV, LEB, NASB, NIV, NIV. Everyone else translates, translates it um, oppressed. I, I think the CSB should translate this oppressed as well. Persecuted is okay, but I think oppressed is better um, because it's not just about those who are persecuting you um, directly. It could, be, it could also be systemic oppression, systemic persecution, systemic issues, um, cultural patterns in the world. Yahweh is a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Trouble. Now the oppression that would have came to David's mind is maybe the oppression of his enemies trying to attack him, right? They're trying to oppress him and attack him and persecute him. That makes sense. Now, most people who are reading the Psalms are not reading it during David's time. They're reading it during, do you guys know before the New Testament where are they mostly reading the Psalms? Anyone wanna guess when you take all the Psalms together? Most of them are reading the Psalms in exile. So when you're in exile, you're under Babylon or you're under Persia or you're under Greece or you're under Rome. And because you're under that, when you're reading about oppression, you're not only thinking about David's oppression, you're thinking about, man, like here we are occupied by the Romans. Here we are occupied by Babylon or by Persia. And you feel the oppression of the fact that Israel is not a free state. And so even then they're saying, man, God doesn't forget us. He's a refuge for us in our time of oppression and trouble. Now, the biggest time of oppression and persecution is for for the Israelites in the Old Testament is what? Their slavery where? Anyone know? Their slavery in Egypt, in Egypt, right. That's their biggest time of oppression. And so um, they they remember that time of oppression. Now, was God faithful to deliver them from that oppression? Was God a refuge for them in times of trouble? Yeah, I mean, in the most dramatic Old Testament, the equivalent to Jesus walking around doing all the miracles and stuff in the New Testament and him dying on the cross and rising from the dead, if that's the big event in the New Testament times, the big event in the Old Testament times is Exodus, is their deliverance out of Egypt. Climaxing, we climax with the cross and resurrection, they climax with the Red Sea and, and crossing the Red Sea. But all of those miracles and all of that, that's kind of like the equivalent of concentrated power and redemptive action of God seen in history. And they were oppressed, and God, re- God redeemed them out of slavery to, in Egypt. And that, um, even for us today, um, the saints today are those who are under the oppression of the beast and the world in Revelation. That the world system will oppress Christians even today, if you read Revelation rightly. Now, it's right to think of us as under financial oppression or cultural oppression or societal oppression. That exists in Los Angeles today, just as it does in other societies. But it's also right to understand that we're ultimately spiritually oppressed. Sure, we are societally oppressed, and that is a big deal. The poor are oppressed in many ways. But it says here that we, Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, right? That we're spiritually poor and bankrupt. And Christ looks at the crowds in in Matthew 9, verse 36, with compassion because they are distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. There is real spiritual and societal oppression on Christians and on non-Christians. And God cares for the oppressed. He's a refuge to them. In my devotions this week, I'm reading through Ruth, and I was reading Ruth 2 this week, and Ruth lost her husband, if you don't know the story of Ruth. She lost her husband. Her mother-in-law Naomi lost her husband when there was a great famine. They lost their husbands in Moab. Ruth is a Moabitess. Naomi is, is an Israelite, and so is, is from Judah. And so there they are in Moab, and they all lose their, um, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law all lose their husbands. So Naomi loses her husband and her two sons. That's a oppressive situation, right? I mean, not necessarily by people, but that's, you're, you're pressed in on, there's a lot of pressure when you lose your husband and your two children, and all you have left is your two daughters-in-law. So she tells her two daughters-in-law to go back to their home. You're still young, you can still get remarried, you can still have your life and children. Don't stay with me, I can't have more kids. Like, go back to your people, I'm gonna go back to Judah. And uh, one of the daughters leaves, but the other one, Ruth, says, I'm not leaving, where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I'll die. Your people will be my people. Your God, Yahweh, will be my God. I'm not leaving you. I, I make a covenant on my life. May God punish me if I don't follow you everywhere until I die. She makes this drastic covenant. And so Naomi's like, all right, I guess. I get it, I get it, you're coming with me. Okay, so, so they go together and then they're in a vulnerable situation. They go back, they, they have nothing. They've lost everything, no home, no, nothing, right? No money, nothing. They go back to Judah. And people remember Naomi, she grew up there. There's relatives there, but they have nothing. They're broke. And they're two women in a society that needs men to provide for their needs. That's an oppressive situation. So so Ruth, the young woman, goes out and starts going to, God allows for the poor to be provided for through crops where you're not allowed to take to, um, take the corners of your crops because that's for the poor to work, yet they could earn their own food here. So Ruth is out there in the fields, but that's still a dangerous thing to do, especially if you're a young woman with a lot of men who are lustful and things like that and oppressive, for a young woman to be wandering around um, collecting um, wheat and barley for her, her family, her, her and her mom, her mother-in-law, but she does that. And so when um, Boaz who owns the field sees it, he says, you know what, leave her alone, actually protect her. And then he says, he, he tells people, he tells the ladies, hey, let her hang out with you guys. So she's safe. And she tells he tells the guys, guys, don't touch her. You guys need to protect her. And then he even let, leaves water out for her, for her water breaks. And then when they eat, he even lets her eat as well. And she's like, why are you showing me all of this kindness? And and this is what Boaz says. Boaz says in Ruth 2.12, because you have been devoted to your mother-in-law and I heard about it, and you have come come under the wings of Yahweh for refuge. Notice that. She's vulnerable. She's oppressed. She's in a difficult situation. And she has come under the wings of Yahweh for refuge. And was Yahweh a refuge for Ruth? He was. Through Boaz, through that protection, food now, she gets to work and she's protected. Not only that, eventually, if you guys know the rest of the story, I'll spoil it for you. um, She ends up getting married to Boaz, so she gets married and then she has kids. And now her mom is taken care of. She was oppressed. Naomi was oppressed. Ruth was oppressed. And they come under the wings of Yahweh and Yahweh cares for them. He protects them. He provides for them, not only to their own life, but then Ruth has children, so now Naomi has grandkids. Not only does she have grandkids, what a great situation. But this becomes the line that goes to David and to Jesus. They actually, in their oppression, they get to become part of the messianic line. Praise God. In your oppression, God is a refuge to you. God cares for the oppressed. God is a refuge in times of trouble. So we sing gratefully and publicly because Yahweh remembers the oppressed, those in difficult situations. Now, God often uses his people like Boaz to bless and serve the oppressed, so we need to keep that in mind as well. So we sing, and we're we're gonna sing today in the Zoom meeting, or we have already, when dark trials come and my heart is filled with the weight of doubt, I will praise him still. For the Lord our God, he is strong to save from the arms of death and the deepest grave. And he gave us life in his perfect will. So by his good grace, I will praise him still. Praise God that he cares for the oppressed and that he never lets the wicked go unpunished. Praise God. But aren't the oppressed sinners too? Don't the oppressed sometimes oppress other people? Haven't you who trusted in Yahweh, disobeyed Yahweh in your identity, or in other things, becoming idolatrous? I mean, we're Christian, right? But haven't Christians also sinned and acted in unchristian ways? Haven't you done that even this week? Aren't we guilty of idolatry? How can we claim God's refuge, God's favor, and God's deliverance when we're guilty? You know what, for our sin, what do we deserve? For our sin, according to Psalm nine, what do we deserve for our sin? We deserve to retreat, we deserve to stumble, we deserve to perish. From Psalm Psalm 9, we deserve to be rebuked by God and convicted and shamed and felt guilty. We deserve to be destroyed, to be uprooted and to be forgotten. We deserve to be eternally ruined. We deserve to have our names erased forever and ever just like everyone else, right? Do you remember the first time God talks about erasing names from his book? Do you guys know that story? It's in Exodus 32, the golden calf incident. When the Israelites are commanded with the 10 commandments and they're receiving that, they say, we're going to obey it. When Moses goes back up to the mountain, they build a golden calf and say, here is Yahweh your God. And they worship a golden baby cow. Worship a golden baby cow and call it Yahweh. Idolatry, evil, wickedness. And then God tells Moses in, in Exodus 32, I'm about to go down there and kill all those fools. I'm about to kill them all. I'm killing all of them. They're all dead. I'm going to start a new nation with you. I promised Abraham a great nation. You're from Abraham. I'm starting over with you. And Moses pleads with God. God, don't do this. You took them out of Egypt. What are people gonna say about your great name? You redeemed this people to kill them all in the the wilderness? That makes no sense. Come on, Lord. And God relents, you know, because Moses is praying according to God's will. So Moses reasons and God relents, but then they still kill 3,000. They execute 3,000 people that day, that moment for the idolatry. And then Moses goes back to God. He, he, he rebukes all the people and says, I'm gonna go back to God and see if I can make atonement for your sin. So he goes up to the mountain, talks to God, and he says this to God. Lord, forgive them. And if you won't, erase my name from the book. Blot my name out of the book and forgive them. There's Moses trying to make atonement. Now God says, no, the on- only the ones who sin will be erased from the book. And so... Moses doesn't get to make atonement. But there is someone who does make atonement, right? There is someone who stands before God and says, they sinned and you deserve to wipe them out, but blot my name out instead of theirs. Erase my name, rebuke me, destroy me, uproot me, pour out your wrath and judgment on me the Lord Jesus dies for sinners. He's the one who makes the atonement. He's the one on the cross hanging in darkness for three hours. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the one who is blotted out from the book of life for that moment to die for our sins and make atonement for us. So even though we are oppressed, we're also the oppressor. Even though we've been sinned against, we're also the sinners who deserve death. But praise God for Jesus who was blotted out for a moment and then rose from the dead to have life forevermore. He is the resurrection life as it says behind me. But he was blotted out for that moment. If you're not a Christian, I want you to hear this message. This is the greatest message of all. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you and I are sinners and we deserve damnation for our sins because God is holy and righteous and he created us. So we are indebted to him, we owe him, we're accountable to him and God will hold us to account. But God sent his son Jesus into the world to die for your sins, to die for my sins and rise from the dead so that if you repent from your sins and if you trust in Jesus Christ, if you turn to him and turn away from your sins and turn away from your righteousness and trust Christ alone for your salvation, you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven. His death will count for you and his life will be given to you. So if you're not a Christian, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, praise God for the gospel, continue to repent from your sins and your goodness and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Church family, what does this mean for us? We need to sing thoughtfully. If we're gonna sing gratefully and publicly, we need to sing thoughtfully, worshipfully, and corporately. For the Christian, you need to sing gratefully before God and sing gratefully before non-Christians. God is good to us, isn't he? God saves us. God causes our enemies to fail. God judges rightly. God remembers us and protects the oppressed. So we should sing to God gratefully. That's the main goal. As you look back and as you look forward, speak out to God so that you enjoy his blessing. How do we speak out to God? We sing to God. Secondly, and not as long, we pray to God. We sing and give thanks looking back and we pray to God looking forward in faith. Okay, let's look at verses 13 through 20 here for these last minutes. And let's uh, let's think about, praying. So point two, pray confidently for salvation through judgment. Okay, if you're taking notes, that's the way I'm stating the full point. Pray confidently for salvation through judgment. Pray with faith. Pray with trust. Pray with expectance. Pray confidently that God would save us, save you, and save his people through judgment verses 13 through 20. Let's look at the command here briefly. It's in verse 13 and it's in verses 19 and 20. Not the command, well, my command is pray. But let's look at David's example here of praying in verse 13 and verses 19 and 20. Look at verse 13. He prays for grace. Be gracious to me, Yahweh. In light of sin and affliction, we need God's grace. We don't deserve God's goodness. We need God's grace. But also look at verse 13, he prays for salvation from death. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death. I'm about to die. I'm at, the, I'm at death's doorstep. I'm right at the, the hole of the grave. I'm about to die. I'm at the gate of death and Lord, I'm about to fall in and die. I need you to lift me up. Save me from death. Save me from my enemies. Save me from my circumstantial and situational trouble that I'm in. That's what David's praying. He's praying for salvation from death because David faced a real threat on his life. And we could pray for God's deliverance from the coronavirus. We could pray for God's deliverance from certain situations that we're in, in our lives that are troubling us and that are oppressive. You can and should pray for those things. And obviously we should pray for final and ultimate salvation from all of these things when Christ returns. But notice here, David is praying for salvation from death. Verse 19, David is also praying for judgment. And this is what we talked about in Psalm 7. So I refer you back there if you want a fuller sermon on this idea. But look at verse 19. Rise up, Lord. Don't let mere humans prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. He prays for judgment of the Gentiles. Those who reject God are not part of God's people, who are not aligned with God's Messiah, David, and now Jesus, the ultimate Messiah. Don't let them prevail. Let them be judged in your presence. Rise up, God. Pull your sword out. Pull your your arrows and your bow out with the flaming uh, flaming arrows of death and strike the enemies. Kill them. Judge them. Verse 20, David prays for humility, for for them to be humbled and maybe even saved. Put terror in them, Lord. Let the nations know they are only humans. You're God and they're weak humans. They're like grass. They're here and they die. They're just men. They're just women. They're just human, frail, expiring, aging, weakening humans. That's all they are. Put terror in them, Lord. Scare them. He prays that they would be humbled. Because terror, now terror might lead to salvation, right? Um, And that's our heart's desire. We pray for people because we want them to be saved. But if you're not, if you don't have the fear of God in your heart, that God is powerful and that he's righteous and that you're a sinner and that he deserves to judge us for our sins, if that doesn't freak you out, if that doesn't scare you, then you really don't trust in the true God. And so you almost need to pray that God would help them to feel the terror that is real because God is truly terrifying. That's not an understatement. That's an, I mean, that is an understatement. That's not an overstatement. God is truly terrifying. Part of the audacity of sinners is that they're not even scared. They're not terrified of hell. They're not terrified of the lake of fire. They're not terrified of judgment. They feel guilty. They do something wrong and then they move on. There's no terror. So David prays, put terror in their hearts. Now, these last two things, rise up in judgment, put terror in their hearts, um, you know. This is, effect, in effect, praying for final judgment. So this is why I say pray for judgment. We say, So we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Or, um, as the Lord taught us to pray, your kingdom come. Your sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule come. Well, for Jesus to finally bring that in fullness means final judgment on the enemies. And so we pray for their salvation. You can look, look at Revelation 22, verses 11 through 20, about, you know, let the righteous still be righteous, but let those who are... Um, let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. But it also says, let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Now may all come who want to come, but if they want to keep sinning, then may judgment come. But, but, but the spirit and the bride do say come. Come to the Lord Jesus. But if you won't have this free water of life, then let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. and Let the filthy still be filthy because the Lord Jesus will come. And the Christian's prayer and the psalmist's prayer is bring judgment. Bring salvation, Lord, but if not, bring judgment. Now here, briefly, there are three reasons why we can pray for judgment through salvation confidently. Okay, three brief reasons why we can pray for judgment through salvation with confidence. Pray confidently because, verse 14, we will rejoice. Because we will rejoice. Look at verse 14. Lift me up from the gates of death so that I may declare all your praises. I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of daughter Zion. So he wants to declare God's praises. He has resolved that he will rejoice in God's salvation. Now notice it's in daughter Zion. Zion is the city of God. Daughter Zion is maybe the daughter of the city of God or the future city of God. The offspring, the the connected eschatological final city of God. So notice this rejoicing in God's salvation. If you're gonna rejoice in the city of God, it's not a private thing, that's corporate. You're gonna rejoice with God's people in the city of God, aren't you? This is geographical. We're gonna be gathered together right now um, there are four of us who are geographically located together praising God. Four members of BBC. But typically every Sunday, we geographically get together with the temple of God, the city of God, the church, to praise God because it's corporate. It's geographical. And it's tabernacle centered for David. It's in the city of God where the tabernacle and God's presence is. We are the temple today. When Christ returns, the whole new earth will be the temple and we will rejoice there forever. So it's temple centered. It's tabernacle centered. It's Jesus centered. It's church centered. And we, we do the same today when we gather that we will do in the final Jerusalem. We will praise God and rejoice in our salvation. And so we sing songs like, Jerusalem, my happy home. And we sing to Jerusalem, when shall I come to thee? When shall my sorrows have an end? Your joys, when shall I see? Lord, Come because we will rejoice. So we can pray confidently because we will rejoice. Secondly, we can pray confidently because our enemies will fail. We talked about that already in verses three through six, but that's also in verses 15 through 17. Our enemies will fail. The second reason, the nations have fallen into the pit they made. Their foot is caught in the net they have concealed. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed justice. So God undermines them snaring the wicked by the work of their hands. So they fall into their own trap, their own devices, but God is the one behind it, snaring them with their own snares, trapping them with their own traps. So God is actively undermining them. And then in verse 17, they're going to return to death. The wicked will return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. Interestingly, it's the wicked will return to Sheol. In our Bible reading, one of our members asked, how will they return to the place of the dead? Sheol is the place of the dead. Like, did they come from the place of the dead? And one commentary, I got one commentary to answer it, and it was what I guessed was the answer, which is why I tell you guys to guess the answer first, but just to exercise your minds. But it's that they are natives of the land of death. They're from the land of death in the sense that they're spiritually dead. They are born sinners. They are sinners by nature and by choice. And so they have a sentence of death. They're children of wrath, it says in Ephesians 2. And so those who are wicked like we were before we got saved, we're children of death, and we're gonna return to death. That's what happens to the wicked. They will return to death. So the second reason to pray confidently is because your enemies will fail. The third reason to pray confidently, so not just because you'll rejoice and not just because your enemies will fail, but lastly here, pray confidently because God remembers the oppressed. Again, these are the same themes that were in the first section, right? God remembers the oppressed. Look at verse 18. Why should we pray this way? Why will the wicked go to death? For the needy will not always be forgotten. The hope of the oppressed will not perish forever. God remembers the oppressed. He remembers those who oppressed the oppressed, the oppressors, and God will judge them. And that's why they will die. And God will remember the oppressed. He remembers the needy. He remembers us. He remembers you. He remembers you and your oppression. And that's why we can pray confidently for salvation through judgment because God will not forget us and the hope will not be forgotten. That's verse 18, the second part of verse 18. The hope of the oppressed will not perish. Our hope is alive there is hope in a hopeless world. If you're not a Christian you want hope, God has hope for you, but your hope, your only hope is in Christ. And that hope will never perish. The hope of the sinners, the oppressed, by sin, by the world, by Satan, by our own flesh, by those outside of us, our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of, of, of David here, Yahweh. Now, I want to... Um, read to you a story of the persecuted church today, just to give you a context of how, why, why do we pray for salvation through judgment? Let me read you a, a prayer request that was posted just um, Friday or Thursday on uh, iCommitToPray.com, which is from persecution.com. This is in Nigeria. The global pandemic has not stopped Muslim militants from continuing their attacks on Christian villages in Northern Nigeria. VOM workers, Voice of the Martyrs workers, have documented attacks on 15 cities in Plateau and Kaduna states since January 8, 2020. At least 86 people have been killed, 13 kidnapped, and 24 injured in the attacks. Man, this is what's happening to Christians, our brothers and sisters in Nigeria. And more than 400 families have had to relocate. That's not counting the crimes with those who've been kidnapped, the rapes, the assaults. In the most recent attack on May 5, eight militants shot a pastor, his wife, and their two children at their home. Thankfully, all survived. Despite pandemic lockdown measures, Voice of the Martyrs workers have been able to distribute food aid on the three days per week when travel is permitted and safety measures are in place to protect those receiving aid. Quote, we continue our commitment to serve the persecuted in the midst of the pandemic. Voice of the Martyrs Regional Director for Africa said. So we got brothers and sisters right now, even this month, shot. Pastor who was shot, his wife shot, two children shot. 86 killed, 13 kidnapped, 24 injured in the attacks, 400 families displaced. And we pray prayers like Psalm 9. Pray for judgment. Rise up, Lord. Don't let mere humans prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Put terror in them, Lord. Convert them the way you converted the Apostle Paul. But if not, Lord, let the nations know they're only humans. Judge them. We pray for their salvation because we're sinners too. We're not greater than them. We're not better than them. We're not more righteous than them. And yet at the same time, we do pray for judgment if they will not be saved and repent. So brothers and sisters, let's pray in light of the suffering church. This is normal Christianity. This is not extreme Christianity. Persecution and opposition for following Christ is normal. It's ordinary Christianity. Let's pray for ourselves in other churches and for the gospel to spread. And let's pray for the Lord Jesus to return. Let's pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let us be a praying church on Sunday nights together. You can join us for Zoom meetings on Sunday nights. You can join us when we're gathering back together. As soon as we regather, we will have Sunday night gatherings. Pray with us then. And let's pray together in our Bible readings for one another and for um, and even in our own homes. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know this. Though we pray for judgment for all, even for those who will never become Christian, we pray even more for your salvation. We long for your happiness and your eternal life, united to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King, God, the Son. But we also pray that for those who don't turn to Christ, that God would not compromise his righteousness. So I plead with you, please turn to Christ. And if you can't turn to Jesus yet, you're not ready to trust him, at least continue to consider Jesus, ask questions, contact me, contact us, contact other Christians and ask them questions about Jesus and the gospel that you might be thoughtfully informed before you make such a crucial decision to continue rejecting Jesus or as you make that decision because every day you're already deciding. So here's the main goal. As you look back and look forward, speak out to God so that you enjoy God's blessing. Sing gratefully and publicly to the Lord and pray confidently for salvation through judgment. Let me give you one idea on how to apply this as we close. This is one idea: sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord with others before you meet, before you eat a meal one day, um, once a day this week. So seven times before you eat, sing together. Pick a song or a verse and sing gratefully and publicly to the Lord. Make this a habit. So that when you have non-Christians in your home or when you're a church member, you visit another home and there's some church members together. If we're singing regularly before we eat a verse, then when non-Christians come, it's not awkward. It's not like, oh, let's sing because non-Christians are here. Let's sing publicly whether there's a, whether there's non-Christians there or not. Make it a habit. That, I'm not saying thus says the Lord, but I'm just suggesting to you. Maybe you should you should make it a practice to sing a verse to the Lord publicly out loud before you eat. If you sing regularly and publicly and gratefully, if you don't do that, you might grow in ingratitude toward God and a complaining heart when you face trial after trial after trial. But if you sing gratefully and publicly, regularly, and if you pray to God for salvation through judgment, you'll deepen the truth inside your soul through singing, you'll draw near to God, not just intellectually, but emotionally and even bodily, and you'll gospelize those that you sing with, and you'll gospelize people you sing to, It's a win-win. Let me close with a quote from St. Augustine or Augustine. This is what Augustine said. A song is a thing of joy. More profoundly, it is a thing of love. Anyone, therefore, who has learned to love the new life has learned to sing a new song. And the new song reminds us of our new life. But make sure that your life does not contradict your words. Sing with your voices, your hearts, your lips, and your lives. If you desire to praise him, then live what you express. Live good lives, and you yourselves will be his praise. That's what we wanna be as Bethany Baptist Church. We wanna be an embodiment of God's praise, of God's song. So let's sing and pray for for our joy in God. Let's pray. Father, hide these words in our hearts that we would not sin against you. Draw us near to you, we pray. Help us to sing gratefully and publicly, regularly, even before meals. And help us to pray for salvation through judgment. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Save the lost, send out the missionaries, grant them success, help the saints to endure, and help us to sing with joy because you have been so good to us in the past and you will be good to us in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.